hearts are a little heavy, uh, having lost uh, two from our congregation and then connected indirectly maybe to two others in the last two weeks. So uh, we, we feel that as a church. I'll turn with me this morning to Hosea chapter 9. We want to continue to work our way uh, through that. Uh, while you're working there, I want to say thank you to those who provided for uh, food for the family yesterday. We were able to uh, encourage them with a meal together and they enjoyed some fellowship. And just a reminder, uh, if you did that, to pick up your dish in the kitchen. It's on the bar there as you leave today. But thank you for that uh, ministry. Uh, I don't know if you've had a part of being a blessing of that ministry, but it means a lot to be able to sit down with family after, uh, after you return from the cemetery and all the, uh, all the services have concluded and just uh, be able to relax and spend some time fellowshipping with your family and uh, friends. So thank you for providing for that ministry. Uh, you've heard me say many times, uh, I'll quote uh, John Piper when he said that all you will receive today is mercy. Uh, from the day I heard that quote, uh, it, it kind of resonated with me because it was, it, 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 it connected with a, a reasoning or a, a conviction that was growing in my own heart. And, and that was, uh, that it is all of mercy. Uh, you will never merit <clears throat> anything from God by your own conduct. It will never be good enough to merit those things. So that the blessings that pour into your life, even through the instrument of your obedience to God, are still flowing from mercy. And that's centralized in the death of Christ, pre-cross pre and resurrection and post-cross and resurrection. So if you're here today and you are being blessed... Uh, it is not because you have been such a perfect Christian this week. It is not because you have figured things out. Uh, all those things and all your obedience may be instrumental uh, in God's providing for those blessings, but the blessings themselves flow from the, mercy, the, the merit of Christ's suffering. That's an important thing to grasp, and I think it's the it's the... It's, it's what God was teaching his people uh, throughout their lives and through the various covenants that he entered into with his people. And Hosea uh, is speaking to that issue. Uh, we know from the context that Hosea was one of the earliest of the minor prophets. In fact, while he was prophesying this, it sounds as though it's present tense for Israel, but he's speaking uh, as though it is upon them while they are, at this point, they are uh, close to, to the maximum of their kingdom. Israel had spread out and they, had, they were flourishing in some ways, prospering uh, materially, and they were experiencing some power and some economic prosperity. So they're not in a dire straits at this moment. And so you can imagine how Hosea's prophecy landed on them. It would be like someone coming to America in the heyday of our prosperity and our, and our luxury and our comfort and our optimism and saying to us, the judgment of God is upon you. We would have been hard pressed to believe that. Well, there's, doesn't look like judgment to us. It looks like we're being blessed, in fact. Well, Hosea seems to be writing to that as well. So let's read chapter 9 and 
I don't think I'll cover all the verses, but get started into that. But Hosea writes, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exultation like the nations, for you have played the harlot forsaking your God. You have loved harlot's earnings on every threshing floor. Threshing floor and wine press will not feed them, and the new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. But Ephraim will return to Egypt, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food, and they will not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat of it will be defiled, for their bread will be for themselves alone. It will not enter into the house of the Lord. In this sobering verse, what will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather up, get them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will take over all their treasures of silver and thorns will be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The day of retribution has come. Let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool and the inspired inspired man is demented because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet. Yet the the snare of the bird catcher is in all his ways and there is only hostility in the house of his God. They have gone deep into depravity as in the days of Gibeah and he will return their iniquity and will punish their sins. I found Israel, this is God speaking, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor, devoted themselves to shame or to idols, and they became a detestable as detestable as that thing which they loved. And as for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre, but Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him. And they will be wanderers among the nations. Father, we thank you for your word. As always, we are dependent this morning upon you, I in the speaking, and those who are gathered in the hearing. It does no one any good whatsoever today to hear fleshly words and hear with fleshly ears. So we pray that you might perform the miracle of rolling back the the veil and unstopping the ears that we might hear your word, your truth. And Lord, I pray that we might heed the warning given to Israel here as a nation and as a as church in this nation particularly, Father, but as all those who are professing the name of Christ. So help us this morning as we look into your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's really quite a striking <clears throat> passage of scripture. In fact, all of Hosea is, and uh, I was sharing with someone last week, I've, I've thought often about breaking the book up into uh, one, one chapter a month just to give us some breathing room and and their counsel was, why would you want to take the pressure off? And there is pressure here. 
Uh, and it's, uh, you can keep this in this historical context and say, oh, how terrible Israel had become. But if you don't make any application, you miss so many of the points. In verse 1, he begins this with this exhortation or this condemnation of their sense of rejoicing. This is why I say they must have looked around and rejoiced in the sense that we must be doing something right. We're prospering. And so the prophet rebukes them in the very first verse of chapter 9. He says to them, do not rejoice, O Israel, with the nations like all the other nations. He says two things there, simply do not rejoice. This is striking to me because their, their perceived prosperity and comfort for them should not be an occasion for rejoicing. And for them to do so was to exalt like the nations. That's what the nations do. When they're prospering, when they're powerful, when their borders are expanding, they rejoice. And Israel was in a sense doing the same thing. So the prophet begins in saying to them, no, don't rejoice, don't, don't exalt like the nations. Yes, you may be prospering and yes, you may be at a zenith perhaps of even your power. But this for you is not an occasion for rejoicing. There's something else afoot here. And it should be a sincere wake-up call. It is true, it is true that many temporal blessings flow to the faithful. That is a true statement. But that they are not immediately taken away is no proof of a continuing faithfulness. You don't have to turn here, but listen to Deuteronomy. And this is Moses now warning the children of Israel in his last council before Joshua was to take the lead of the people of Israel. In verse 14 of chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near, so call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. And listen to this. And this people will arise and play the harlot with strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going. And they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Let me just say here that I believe that God will save many of Israel, but it will not be by the means or in, through the means of those covenants which they broke. In terms of that, that covenant is invalid for they have violated the terms of that covenant. He will save them, but through another covenant. And that covenant is a covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. So the Jew who is saved in the last days will come through a new covenant, through Christ. Because they have broken the covenant here upon which he related to them. He says, my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will go, they will be consumed and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that those evils have come upon us? It's what they ought to have said. But he says, I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do for they will turn to other gods. And then he instructs him to write this song 
Now listen to what Moses says in verse 25. It came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord saying, take this book of the law and place it before the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God that it may remain there as a witness against you. And this is what he says to them. For I know, he's talking to people alive at the moment. I'm going, I'm going with, to be with the Lord. You're going to go over into Canaan and God has already forecasted that you would abandon him there and forsake him and that he would just withdraw his grace and pour out his wrath upon you and you'd be persecuted by the nations. Nevertheless, in the sight of that, here's this book of the law. It'll be present before you as a witness against you. You have not abided by the terms of the covenant and you ought to say in that day, we are suffering because we have not been obedient to the Lord. But you won't say that. So Moses says to them, for I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I'm still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more then after my death? And then he assembles the elders and the tribes and their officers, and he speaks all of these things before them. You want to look in chapter 32, you can see the entirety of the Song of Moses. So it, it should come as no surprise to the people of God that, that they are prone to rebellion and resistance. And that's a sobering thought. In fact, comfort and prosperity, listen carefully to this, but comfort and prosperity, even in times of faithfulness, are mercies from God, since at no time is our faithfulness perfect. That these blessings remain while faithfulness diminishes is no less a mercy as well, and as a witness against you and I and a testimony of the patience of God, not willing that you should perish, but that you should repent. As I said at the time of Hosea's prophecy, generally Israel was flourishing outwardly, even as spiritual decay was accelerating. In fact, in verse 1, you see as well the sin that set in motion the judgments that were coming upon them. In verse 1, he says, you have played the harlot over and over. He has called Israel that throughout Hosea. And part of that means forsaking your God. You had, you had been unfaithful to your husband. I, I called you out of Ur of the Chaldees. I made of you a nation, a peculiar people of my own possession, not because you were more valuable than any other of the people, but because I loved you. I loved you because I loved you. You are my people as a, as a manifestation of my glory and my sovereign choice of you, yet you have forsaken me. That's harlotry. You have become adulterous. And that's the root of their sins is this abandonment. But also they had come to love a harlot's earnings, he says, on every threshing floor. In a sense, in a sense they were assigning their temporal blessings to the very idols that they had abandoned God to serve. I mean, it's outrageous. Not only had they forsaken God, but they had taken the prosperity and the provisions and the blessings that God had provided and had, had assigned the credit to, of those to the idols and were now bowing down before the idols for the very things that God had provided for them. I don't know how you could insult your God or your husband more than that. It would be like a, a wife who leaves her husband forsakes him and then, and then inherits uh, the blessings of her husband and then assigns the credit to those to her, uh, the one with whom she's had the affair and gives him the credit for all that she has amassed, which all came from her husband. It is a striking thing here. 
Notice he says as well that the Lord will deprive you basically of what you attribute to your idols. You see that in, in verse 2, which is interesting as well. He says, threshing floor. He says that you have loved their earnings in the threshing floors. But then he says, threshing floor and wine press will not feed them. And the new, new wine will fail them. So, so the things that God had provided because they were assigning credit to their idols, God's taking that away. And now the things that they have are going to fail them. So there's going to be poverty and this luxury and this comfort is going to be taken away from his people. Mainly because they were assigning credit to the idols and not giving glory to God for those things. Very sobering as well. I think that withdrawal indicates two things about Israel. Number one is the declaration. It, it, they become a declaration of the wickedness or the weakness of their idols. In other words, you assign credit for these things to your idols. I'm taking them away from you so that you might know your idols are powerless. Powerless. They have no ability to provide grain or wine, nor do they have ability to provide you a career even in our day today. What you are depending upon and attributing to someone outside of yourself other than God, whether it be your career, your wages, your health, or anything else, he can deprive you of those very things simply to, de to make a declaration to you that the things you are trusting in are weak and are no gods at all. That's why he's taking this away. I don't want you thinking that your idols are in any way providing for your provision daily, whether it's wine or whether it's grain. I don't want you to think you're surviving by some means other than my mercy. And so since you think you are, I'm taking those away to demonstrate that the thing you're trusting in has not the power to sustain you. So it could have been that he took them away as a declaration of the weakness of those idols. You've heard me say this a lot through the years, but it seems as though when I was away from Christ, I tried to sustain or shore up my life in so many ways. And, and it seemed like the slightest little thing that I found some happiness in, the moment I found some happiness and contentment with it, it's as if God knocked that prop out from under me. And it, and it was that way systematically through my life. When that happened, I found something else and found some temporary solace or comfort in that thing. And the moment I began to think that thing is finally the key, that's what I've been missing, God would slap it out from under me again. I would collapse again. Miserable. On and on and on that went through many years in my life before all the props were knocked out and I understood that there's nothing in this world that I can hope in. There's nothing that's sufficient in the day that I can trust in other than God. Notice the indictments here is what is withdrawn. In verse 2, grain and wine will fail you. I think that's representative of their provision and their comfort, even their joy, wine being a, an instrument of celebrating that joy. So these things are being taken away. As they were once held captive here, he talks about in Syria in verse 3, as they were once captive in Egypt, so now again they will be taken away as captives to Assyria. It's like 400 years in Egyptian captivity didn't convince you of your need. I was, me and Hope were talking this morning and it's striking that God brings his people through a mighty hand and through great plagues out of Egypt, out of that powerful nation. That nation pursues them and he destroys their army in the Red Sea, brings them to the brink of the promised land. And then says, after demonstrating such power, says to them, go in and take the land promised to you. 
And they send their spies and 10 come back and they said, there's no way. I mean, God just destroyed the Egyptian army with the parting and the closing again of the Red Sea. But you think that the grasshoppers, the people who make you look like grasshoppers, are somehow indestructible before the same mighty God. And they rebelled. And what did God set in motion after that in their rebellion? Forty years of learning that their survival depended every single day on the grace of God. I'm not giving you two weeks worth of manna. I'm giving you manna today. Go out and eat the manna and trust me to provide it tomorrow because it's going to all melt away and rot away by the evening. So eat all you need to in the morning when you gather it and you're not going to be able to depend on today's provision to supply you tomorrow. I'm going to send it tomorrow and the next day and when it gets Friday evening, I'm going to send it double portion so you won't dishonor the Sabbath and I will provide for you incrementally day by day, day by day. When you get thirsty, I will bring water from a rock and your clothes will not wear out. You won't be wealthy. You won't be prosperous or sitting in luxury, but you will learn in 40 years that that your life depends upon my grace and my mercy. 40 years of training. And finally, they come to the brink of the promised land. Moses is going to be with the Lord and Joshua is giving leadership and Moses tells them, you've learned nothing in 40 years. Today, even today, you are resisting the Lord your God. And so I know that when you go in and inherit the land, you will forget after the blessing comes that he is providing that for you and you will rebel against him and he will come against you. I mean, they went into the promised land having the word of Moses prophesying that this was a danger or would happen to them. It seems like someone somewhere would have said, we need to be, really be, watch this. I thought to myself, they should have appointed a task force that says, monitor the prosperity of the people. And if you see them getting too comfortable, warn them. Well, that's what the prophets were doing. They were warning them. So here they were, having come out of Egyptian captivity, going back to Assyrian captivity. Verse 3 as well, they will live by defiled bread in a heathen land. Essentially, he says in verse 3, they will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. And in Assyria, they will eat unclean food. And they will not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not be pleasing to him. So they're essentially living now as a a judgment of God on defiled bread in a heathen land. In verse 4, you see this as well. Whatever remnants of religious practices, I'm talking about sacrifices here and wine offerings. Whatever remnants of religious practices that remain with you will be empty of spiritual vitality and serve only to fill the belly and that even sparingly. That's what he means when he says your bread will be for your belly. That's it. It's all you get. It's no longer a religious observant. There would be spiritual, spiritual, a lack of spiritual vitality. I'm just going to be gracious enough to sustain you physically. And so the bread that you eat, it's just going to be for your belly. That's it. And the wine that you pour out, none of these things are going to be pleasing to me. So you're losing the very essence of what makes you a vital nation and what identifies you as God's peculiar people. He's withdrawing all of these things. In verse 5 as well, festival and feast days alike and are just empty gestures with them now which provide no joy or encouragement at all. What will you do, he says, on the feast day? What are you going to do? Nothing you can do can be pleasing and 
And the Lord whom you pretend to be honoring in your feast has withdrawn from you. What purpose is there in your feasting? What are you going to do in the day of the feast? What are you going to do, America, on the day of worship, on the first day of the week when you come together in your churches? What are you going to do if the Lord has withdrawn from you? Are you going to go through the practices and the empty rituals and think that somehow it's going to provide spiritual vitality? It's not going to happen when the Lord has removed himself from you. And to me, that's what I worry about in our generation, that so much of religious practice has become empty. We're not, we're not being vitalized or revitalized through these things. We're not worshiping God and communing with God through these things. They are, they're just practices that are hanging on from some tradition that we've forgotten about far back. And we dare not let them go because the tradition is all we have to hold to now. There's no God in it anymore. That's the sorry and sorrowful message of Israel this hearing through the prophet. In verse 6, I summarize those, that verse this way. They will go to their graves in sorrow, torn by their life among thorns and without their treasures, which have been taken over by weeds. All that you trusted in will not suffice, will not provide for you at all. You will go to your graves in sorrow. It's a sad case for Israel. In verse 7, he says very clearly here, now the day has come. It's upon you. The prophets warned of it, but it's here. It's upon you. Don't let your current circumstances make you think that it's not upon you. That's what he's essentially saying. In fact, he says it is the day of punishment and of retribution. It is upon you now. And see, that's what to me is the subtle deception which the vessels entitled here. And that's, that's a sobering thought for me as well. His mercies, the Bible says, true are new every morning. It's a precious promise to the faithful who, though they have not attained to perfection in obedience and in holiness, yet they persevere in their pursuit of God and devotion to His Word. For these, the mercies are new every morning. And that's a sobering thing to think about because they are indeed that. Let me just say this. You're not saved by grace to bring you into position whereby you can earn the future grace. You see what I'm saying? In other words, you're not saved by grace and the mercy of God to set you in a position to set you out on this trail of a perfect life of obedience whereby you might earn all the blessings that are flowing into your life. It doesn't work that way. Though you are obedient every day of your life and though you pursue Christ, indeed, every morning His mercies are new. They're not new one time and then once you live a perfect life, then they become merited blessings. They are mercies new every morning. Tomorrow morning, you'll have new mercy. Why? Because you did nothing today to merit that blessing in your life. It is a mercy to you. It is a mercy to you. But think of this. Yet for the defiant and the continually rebellious man or nation who, hoards, who, who hardens himself time after time after time against the Lord's merciful discipline need not comfort himself with the promise of an inexhaustible mercy, for it may be withdrawn. And if you say, wait a minute, Larry, he says it's new every morning. It's everlasting. Well, listen to what Paul writes. Do you think lightly 
of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation, he talks about there. But my point here is that they are, they are these who are, who are resisting this turning and this repenting. And they think that because the wrath of God doesn't come upon them suddenly that somehow they are escaping that or that somehow God is even approving of a rebellious lifestyle. And he says, no, 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 no. You are storing up wrath as you reject the mercies of God, which are designed to lead you to repentance. And so, so at some point, the mercies of God are exhaustible for those who are in rebellion and in defiance of God himself. And that's Israel's plight here. They have come to this place now to where they are no longer able to do this. The day of punishment has come. The prophet, notice here as well, he says this, the days of retribution have come. Let Israel know this and listen to the cause of this. Let me jump forward because he gives a cause. The grossness of your iniquity and the hostility and your hostility, the greatness of your hostility. For these reasons, the prophet has become a fool and the inspired man demented. And it's funny to me because in their wickedness, they would turn to people traditionally who would give them the word of God. So they appeal to the prophets. What do we do today, the prophets? But your prophets have become fools. And we look to inspired men to give us guidance. So we turn to inspired men and we say, what shall we do? And they can give you no counsel because they themselves have come, become uh, demented. Well, how, how has the prophet become foolish and the wise man or the inspired man demented? Because of the grossness of your own iniquity. And because of the hostility in your own heart. Because of that, you have set men up who will give you prophecies that will satisfy itching ears. And now they themselves are untrustworthy to you. You can't even turn to your prophets. God has withdrawn Here's what I want to say this morning, and I won't be as lengthy, but I want to say this, that, that your present prosperity, comfort, provision is no proof of your present faithfulness. It's not a proof. If you're receiving those things and if you're trying to walk in obedience to the Lord, they are mercies. If you're defying the Lord and walking in disobedience to the Lord, the fact that they remain is, is due to His mercy. It's not because you hadn't got bad enough yet. It's because of His mercy. And this is a conviction of mine that has grown over the years and I think can be borne out in Scripture. And that all mercy going out into the world, even upon the lost men, if you will, provenient grace, all that going out into the world now is drawn from the merit of the sufferings of the holy, sinless Son of God. The value of such suffering is such that mercy flows through the world. And for those who receive that, for them to think that at some point the mercy brought them to a certain place from which they can earn, therefore, the blessings of God the rest of their lives is to diminish the merit of the sufferings of Christ. 
And for the lost whose very breath is rooted in that same mercy of God to live all of their lives exploiting mercy drawn from the value of Christ's suffering while cursing the very Christ from who it is drawn is nothing more but but evidence or or prima facie evidence of their rebellion and brings and comes in to intensify the eternal condemnation that they will endure for having rejected their only means of salvation. It was enough that they were born as fallen men and sons of Adam. That was enough for their eternal condemnation. But these have added weight to their own condemnation in that they have lived all their days exploiting a mercy that was provided by the very blood of Christ while trampling upon that same blood in rejecting Him and living according to the flesh. That's what Israel was guilty of. They were in a situation where outwardly it looked as though God may have been blessing. But here comes the prophet that says, you've deceived yourself and it is a subtle deception because you have attached now the blessings in your life to God's approval of your own faithfulness and your own righteousness. They are no proof. Let me say this today. Your current circumstances and the comfort of those is no proof that you are being faithful to God. They are only proof that He is a merciful, long-suffering God. And whether you're rebelling against God or whether you're walking in obedience to God, neither neither of those things are themselves the, the thing that produces the blessing in your life. It is the gracious mercy of God Almighty. I want you to know that thought this week has humbled me. It has humbled me and it ought to be humbling and it ought to bring us to our knees Because it is a subtle deception that somehow Jesus saved you so he could set you on such a path as you would walk in obedience so as to provide for your own blessings using the divine hand of God. That may not sound like a big sin to you, but to me, you are in that action and in that thinking making light of the very blood of Christ. We're Christians. We're called to follow Christ. We're called to exalt the name of Christ. That's why I think he begins this chapter. Don't rejoice, Israel. Don't rejoice like the nations. They rejoice because they have provision and they have strength and they have power to provide for their own provisions. Israel, your provisions, you think, was brought about the same way. So don't rejoice. Because in that kind of thinking, you have assured that these things will be removed, if not momentarily right now in the judgment of God. And I think it's a sobering message for we Christians today, particularly American Christians where we are comfortable. We are really comfortable. If God has given you an education and a six-figure salary and you've been able to provide well for yourself and your family and you have 401Ks, think not that these are evidences of your faithfulness. God may have used your wisdom and your skill and your training as instruments to provide for those things into your life, but any of those things that were instrumental for providing those can be removed in a moment's time. And it can even, even remove your ability to enjoy those things. They are mercies. They are mercies. And let me say that you and I owe everything we are and we have to the blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross. I mean, we just sang the hymn, Jesus, bring me near the cross. It's central. It's central to God's plan in the universe. 
I honestly believe with all my heart that the earth is rotating on its axis in orbit, providing the precise temperatures we need to sustain human life as a result of the mercy of God merited by Christ's suffering upon the cross. Because if it's not there, there's no reason to preserve this godless, cursed world with all of its cursed inhabitants. Let them spin off into space into eternal destruction because there's no merit in them. There is none righteous, no, not one. You and I are here today, lost or saved, as a result of the mercy of God. The only distinction between the, the two groups I've just mentioned is that one is exploiting that mercy to their own destruction, and the other has acknowledged that mercy to be spared from that destruction. And Christ is the, central, is the center of both of those things. Stand with me this morning. I pray that you'll think through those things, particularly read Deuteronomy, because so much that Moses was saying to Israel is applicable to Israel later in their history and I think also applicable to us today. Father, first and foremost, I thank you for the blood of Christ. By his sacrifices, Isaiah says, by his stripes we are healed. And so, Father, I thank you for the precious blood of Christ. And, Father, forgive us for how often we devalue the merit of his own suffering, assuming that somehow we lived well enough today to to merit good health or to merit prosperity or homes or, or comfort at all. Father, I pray that we might more mindfully attribute all the comforts that you provide and all the provision to your mercies. Lord, they are new every day. It is true. But Father, I pray that you would make us mindful as well if we are apart from Christ, that we do not exploit those mercies as though they are unending, they will and can be withdrawn, especially so when we diminish the very source of the fountain of those mercies. If we deny Christ and reject Christ and trample underfoot the blood of Christ, we have a sure expectation that that mercy will be removed. Father, I pray that if there's one in this room today that has not come to know Christ and, and has not come to treasure the blood of Christ by which they live and by which they're saved, I pray that this would be the day they understand. They're not going to fix their lives well enough. They're not going to correct course well enough to merit somehow salvation. This comes only through Christ. We pray in these moments of invitation that you would speak to our hearts and that our hearts would be responsive to what you say to us individually and as a church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.